when we first started this show, our assumption is most people would ask questions about their mark about the markets or their portfolios. That's kind of stuff that came into my inbox. Hence the name Portfolio Rescue, right? But as the show has gone on to bring a more range of questions in, uh, things will continue to expand. So we get questions now, barely any of them on markets or portfolios. Some of them are, but mostly it's taxes, retirement, insurance, spending, housing, debt, and just a bunch of other topics too. Sometimes people ask me fashion advice, which right. I'm more than happy to give. Regularly. So we felt it was time for name brand to better line the show with the questions that are coming in from our audience. Because the audience, they're the ones, you guys are the ones that are giving us the topics all every week. So Portfolio Rescue will now be called Ask the Compound. And it worked because we already had the email, right? Duncan, ask the compound show at gmail.com. So it's not like it's a huge sure. departure. Still going to be lots of investing in markets and portfolio-related questions. But, you know, ask the compound just makes more sense when you consider the breadth of questions that we get. And um, this is like We the also weren't renaming. really rescuing that many portfolios. You know, we had people writing in, hey, I make, you know, $400,000 a year, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're helping on the edges, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. They're asking questions. So, uh, remember... Ask the compound show at gmail.com. Our sponsor today is Bird Dogs. Duncan, I just got a new shipment in of these bad boys. See nice. Them? They're so comfy. You got see, Oh, see yeah, yeah. I have, I have those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the liner's great. Uh, my, my favorite thing is still the side pocket because you put your wallet in there and you don't sit on it and doesn't like, you know, you know how your, like, your rear end falls asleep if you're sitting on a wallet. I hate that. Uh, go to Bird Dogs, birddogs.com. Use the code BENPR. BENPR. Still using the old portfolio rescue references here, but that's that's what they gave us before. Uh, you get a free tumbler. I don't use a lot of tumblers because I'm not a coffee drinker. I know a lot of people use them though, right? So remember Ben PR. Uh, really quick here, the whole premise of this show has always been that our audience dictates the comment, right? So the content. Each week we pick the best or most relevant topical questions. Last week, there was a handful of questions with people who have six-figure salaries or seven-figure net worths, right? I have all this money, not to brag, all this stuff. Uh, a few people in the chat, listen, I, I'm in there. I'm listening to you people. I'm, I'm hearing the feedback. They said, all these not to brag questions are useless to me because I'm not in that same financial stratosphere. Fair pushback. I, I'm willing I will to say, but a lot feedback. of the stuff does scale, though. You know, like even if you don't have $4 million, a lot of the principles still, still apply Here's that we're the talking thing. about. So many of these finance questions are useful if you know how to apply them to your circumstances. Right? I started my career in the institutional asset management business. I worked with nonprofits who had portfolios of hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, sometimes tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions, up to a billion dollars, right? So the circumstances were different for each of these organizations depending on the size of their portfolio. But there were still plenty of similarities to how we manage the portfolios, right? Each investment plan looked at the organization's risk profile and time horizon and spending needs and then created an asset allocation based on those premises, right? So the way I saw it is the investment philosophy is universal. The strategy is just personal. So I always thought like the, the billion dollar or hundred million dollar portfolios, it was just an extra zero. You still have to think of investing the same way. And I think that the personal finance topics are the same thing. Sure, this person has $6 million and maybe you only have $60,000 saved in your, in your IRA, but they're still thinking about a lot of the same things. So I'm sure you're, you're your financial life becomes a little more complicated and we have more money and maybe there's some other strategies on the on the edges that you have to think about but the big questions the behavioral stuff uh getting that the big big building block stuff right is still exactly the same no matter how much money you have i've always thought that and so what you're saying is go back and watch all of our old episodes if you haven't yet yeah and what do you know we got a handful of questions from viewers that don't involve not to brag situations this week so let's get into one yeah yeah and thanks for the questions because yeah we literally said last week i think you know these are the questions we're getting you want to hear something different send some questions and people did so uh up first we have a question from matt a few weeks ago you got a question about paying off a 6.5 percent mortgage early versus investing that money 
It seemed the consensus was against my early mortgage payments. Well, I have a 6% five-year auto loan on a truck that I use to haul a camper, which I live in full-time. Since I do not benefit from the mortgage interest tax deductions, would it make more sense to aggressively pay off the loan in this case? I currently have enough money in stocks that I could pay this off if I sold everything, not counting my retirement accounts. I own land that I plan to build a house on in the next two to five years. I'm 33, single, and I owe $40,000 on my truck. I have no other debt and make about $50,000 a year. This one sounds like a house hunters episode. <laughs> kind of, I, yeah. I like this one though. So the auto loan is different from a mortgage because we're dealing with different time frames and different financial assets, right? Houses have generally appreciated in value over time to make for a good inflation hedge over the long run. Automobiles, on the other hand, are a depreciating asset. I think the good rule of thumb is the minute you drive it off the lot, an automobile is going to be worth 10% less. I don't know if that's an old wives' tale. I've always heard that, but I've also heard take an additional 10% off the sticker price every year for like five years, and that's your car depreciation, right? Housing is a form of consumption that I think has similarities to a financial asset. Automobiles are a form of consumption that have similarities to a liability. That, that's the way I look at it. So a hurdle rate of 6% per year is pretty simple on this one, but you should probably consider the tax implications of selling if, there, if you have any gains in the, in the brokerage account. And it can do some cost-benefit analysis. I did a little back of the envelope here. $40,000 in debt at 6% over five years. We're talking $6,400 in total interest payments over the life of the loan. So that's not... Not egregious, but you can save yourself some money if you pay it off. So that's your bogey in terms of taxes and opportunity costs if you decide to sell some stocks to pay it off. I, I, I think it's I think this one really comes down to psychology. Your expected return should probably be higher in the stock market, but if this is, you know, part of your living situation, that's potentially a different story. I think if you do sell some stocks to pay this off and you pay the loan, just make a pact with yourself that you're gonna use those monthly payments you would have been paying towards the car loan and dollar cost average right back into the market or save for your house maybe that you're going to build sometime. So I, I just wouldn't, if you're going to pay it off, don't let those payments go to waste if you decide to take care of them. Like put those to good use because then you're, you're, if you're taking away from a financial situation, you should help it out in other ways. Duncan, camper, maybe is that your housing situation? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm happy to announce. I, I mean, I, we've talked about it, but yeah, after eight Airbnbs to start the year, I'm, uh, I'm actually settled down in a, new, in a new place now. So Seriously, eight Airbnbs? Yeah. Airbnbs. So, did my due diligence. I'm not a shareholder, but yeah. All right, I am. So I'll uh, I'll take it. All right, let's do another one. <laughs> good experiences overall. Very good experiences. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so up next we have a question. I don't see the name. Okay. Uh, we have about thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt. My wife and I have decent jobs and live with a modest middle class Midwest lifestyle here in Wisconsin. I'm trying to picture what that means. Uh, but find it hard to put much towards the payments other than minimums. We are making credit card payments of $750 a month with $450 of that being interest. And they say their rates are between 14 and 20%. My wife recently left her job and has a $200,000 ESOP. Is that employee stock option plan? Is that what that Nailed is? Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, balance that we need to roll over into an IRA. I'm thinking of taking an early distribution on $30,000 to pay off these cards. I understand that there's a 10% penalty, but getting rid of a $750 uh, monthly payment would be great for our peace of mind. What do you think? Uh, love the show. Shout out Grand Rapids. My wife and I grew up in Western Michigan. Hmm, lots of Western Michigan shout outs. We're just blowing up here on the west side of the mitten. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so one of the things my, my father ingrained in my head from a young age, this is Ben's rule number one of personal finance. I'm not a shouter, right? I don't pound the table much. Pay off your credit card balance every single month. That's, that's it, because we're talking 15 to 20% interest. John, give me a chart on the average credit card interest right here. 
I think it's it's close to 18% or something. It's ridiculously high. Uh, so this is a this is an annual return that would make Buffett blush, right? This is there's no other expected return investment that's going to do better for you than paying off your credit card debt. So at the extremes, I think there's two types of credit card users. One, people who pay off their balance each month, and then they use a credit card for convenience or the ability to earn rewards, right? They This group just doesn't or shouldn't care about what the rates are. And two is people on the other extreme who pay the minimum balance, have a hard time paying it down, and accumulate more debt over time because that that that's a huge compounding rate against you, right? So I like the idea of using credit cards to earn rewards, maybe build up your credit score, but if you're paying the minimum, you're just falling behind every single month. So you could do the cost benefit here of paying that 10% penalty. I'm guessing there's there's no benefit of not using that money to pay this off. So this person never really said how they got into credit card debt. That's probably maybe the first thing they should do after they pay it off. Uh, it probably makes sense to consider how you got in the situation in the first place. But I'm guessing it would be a huge relief to pay it off, especially if you're only making the minimums. But I would I would think long and hard about how you got into it in the first place. Was this just a big one-time expense that you had to do to get into it? Or is this just this just budgetary problems where you made some bad choices or you had no other choice, but you just credit card debt? So paying it off is great, but if you just go back into debt, uh, that's not going to help much. So You know what I I've found is the average person really does not understand how credit cards work. And I don't even understand all the intricacies myself, and I've read quite a bit about it. But like people do not understand the compounding aspect of credit card interest rates. Oh, no. I remember my sister, when she first got out of college, she said, it's great. I'm just putting all this stuff on my credit card, and all I have to pay is a minimum every month. And right. I said, yeah, that's all you have to pay. But do you realize how much money you're accruing? She didn't realize that the debt grew on itself. Like, right. she didn't know. She had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Yes. It, but this is like the simple stuff where, like, yeah, you get rid of this, whatever you have to do, the Dave Ramsey snowball approach, whatever it is, get out of, get out from under it. And, uh, you know, when are they going to bring these rates down? 27% or 24% interest rates on if credit, credit cards? credit card rates didn't come down when, with 0% interest rates, I think they just never are. I think that's just unsecured debt, and they're always going to have people default. I, I mean, before you pay it off, it's worth it to call your credit card company and say, we're paying the minimums here. Can you help us out a little bit? They Sometimes they could help you a little bit. They may laugh in your face and say, no, pay it off, but it's worth asking. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that uh, Elizabeth Warren hasn't gotten up in there, done something, you know? All right, let's do another one. Okay. Uh, question three is Miguel. Big fan of all the shows. Thanks for the info you provide. I recently accumulated 100 shares of a couple of blue chip stocks, Apple, Disney, Google, and AMD. Is it a good idea for me to start selling cover calls on these stocks? Cover calls are something we never got questions about until the bear market, basically. Yes, it does seem like a bear market. Phenomenon. Let's bring our favorite uh, stock prognosticator on here, Mr. Josh Brown. Josh. <laughs> Hey Josh. Hey guys, so great, so great to be on uh, my favorite show. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming. In a new, in a new background, Josh. It, it do, these are yeah. The this kind is of a. Uh, I don't know if you know this. This is actually a penitentiary behind me. Um, it's a few snipers. <laughs> it does look like you have a prison up, yard up behind you. <laughs> this is uh, so. What this is uh, thirty. This is thirty ninth Street, and um, our office faces. No, not thirty ninth. What what is this? We're on fortieth. Thirty ninth. Fortieth. We face 40th. No, that's 40th. So no. you're you're 40th facing is the fifth. front of the building. Yeah, yeah, you're facing fifth, right? Okay, let me let me let me let me fix this. <laughs> the western exposure of our headquarters looks over um, uh, Bryant Park. So you so you see right. So, but that's facing down 40th in the corner, and then behind us is 39th. So it was nice of you to use your 60 if anybody, if minutes anyone, of sunlight to to be with us today. 
That was very nice. <laughs> yeah. So this is the this Duncan's right. Covered calls are a bear market phenomenon. No one talks about this when stocks are going up and we're in a bull market. But when stocks are going sideways or going down, people say, "This is a free lunch. I'm generating income on the shares I own. What's the downside?" So do you do you ever dabble in options at all? I I honestly I don't. I think it's like an extra added layer of complexity. That's not for me. Some people swear by the income you can get. I think it it just adds a layer of of complexity that's that's that some people don't understand. Yeah, I as a retail broker we did this and we loved it because it was two commissions on the same trade. You would sell you would sell a guy a stock and then you would sell him a covered call to quote unquote protect the stock. And then if he got called out, it was even better. Then it's another commission. And then another commission because you have to buy a new stock, of course. So retail brokers loved selling option strategies to retail clients. But that's 20 years ago. So uh, does this make sense for Miguel? I think no, because he said he's accumulated a couple of hundred shares. So what is the covered call premium that you're able to bring in uh, from selling those options contracts? I mean, we're talking about you know not a lot of money um, for a lot of annoyance, a lot of aggravation to not really bring in that much money. Because if you get called out of one of these stocks, uh, meaning you bought it, it worked, the stock went higher, and it was called away from you at a lower price than, than where it is, then what do you do? You buy it back, or you have to go find a new stock because you don't want to pay up for the stock you just lost. So I don't like it from that standpoint. Um, then there's, there's tax consequences wrapped up in that as well. Uh, and then the other thing is like, why are you buying them to begin with? Is it a trade? If it's a trade <clears throat> and you want to use options to risk manage the trade, um, all right, I, you know, I suppose. But this sounds like when you say the word accumulate, it sounds like you're accumulating an investment. So, you know, why why would you why would you want to um, put a ceiling over the upside of those stock positions? Right, if you're going to be long term owner, I'm not, like, I'm not sure shares. what it accomplishes. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, I get your income. Way. Last thing in zero percent interest rate land. Yeah, you got to do some stuff to generate income. But you don't need that now. You can <laughs> you could buy a six month or a one year T bill, and you can generate current yes. income and leave your stocks alone. So I I am anti that approach. And we've had people before reach out and say that there's ETFs you can get to. I, I would I would much prefer if you're going to do this and try to earn some option income, have a professional do it for you instead of trying to do it yourself. Understanding like the option there, yeah, premiums there. and. That's hard. There are covered call. There are covered call strategies that are now in an ETF wrapper. So if you want to make that part of your portfolio strategy, I think you can do that in a pretty low cost way and not have to be logging in and checking options, you know, all day. So um, look, if if you're talking about a million dollar position and it's like a company you worked for and you can't sell it and there's a huge tax liability, but you want to protect um, that position. Uh, you know, options are uh, a smart way to do that, but that doesn't sound like this is the scenario that Miguel is des- describing. Yeah, it's it's just it's not a free lunch. It sounds like it is, but it, it's it's not. There's so much more that goes into it. If you're accumulating shares, yeah, it is. Keep it simple. If I had a penny for every dollar Nicole to back up from my mic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Is this good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. You guys could say it on the air. You don't have to hold up cue cards. Hey, we try to be it's professional okay. around here, you know? <laughs> uh, what, what is this, the Tonight Show? Just say, Josh, back off your mic. We're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. Uh, up next, right. we have a question from Tom. 
I'm in my late 30s, so I know I should look at this environment as an opportunity to buy at lower prices, but I'm sick of the bear market. Me too. I got caught up in investing in tech in 2020 and 2021, so I'm down way more than the S&P 500, probably down 25 to 30% from my previous highs. It would help to hear your best and worst case scenarios between new all-time highs this year and a 1970s environment where we go sideways for years. I can relate to this question because I'm, I'm kind of bored. It's getting boring. Well, I think the last three years have kind of taught people the long, wrong lessons that they think everything is a top or a bottom and everything has to be like we either go up really fast or down really fast. And it's hard to wrap your head around this. Most of the time, the stock market is somewhere in the middle. It, like it, just by sheer definition, the stock market can't always be at a top or a bottom. I, John, throw the chart up here. I looked at the new all-time highs by decades. It's actually been a decent amount in the 2020s. Oh, this, I is think, this is a great chart. I think there's roughly 2,500 trading days per decade. So if you, if you average this out, it's like, I don't know, 6 or 7% of the time that we hit a new all-time high, right? And, and so it doesn't happen as often as you think to hit a new all-time high. And even in the 1970s scenario where we had all this volatility and stuff, I think the stock market, you know, before inflation was still up 6% per year. So it's not like you went nowhere. It's just it's a more volatile slash boring market. And I think people just want there to be an event that happens that, okay, we're back or no, we're not, because we are kind of in middle ground. The stock market was down 25%. Now it's down, I don't know, 12 or 13. Uh, so it does feel more boring, but I don't know, maybe people should take that as a good thing. Like it's not always a bad thing that the stock market is not as volatile as it was the last few years. So I had this conversation with my driver yesterday coming back from the airport, and he's talking about like how frustrating the market is right now, and you know he wants it to go back to new high. First of all, the two words that you need to remove from your vocabulary is boring and exciting. Like neither, neither one of those should have anything to do with investing. That's one. Two, how old are you? Why do you want new all-time highs? Aren't you a buyer? Like, is this it? You're not going to buy a stock ever again? You bought tech stocks in 2021 and you're done? That doesn't seem likely. Are you 100 years old? So I actually don't understand why people can't. I mean, I do understand. Um, it took me a long time. I shouldn't say that. I think that people need to refocus their energy and their and their uh, and, and and what they get excited about because we're all forced savers. So my driver's young. This guy's younger than me. I'm like, what? I don't understand. You're going to buy stocks next year. You want to pay up just so that the old stocks you bought are higher. What? What does that do? Are you selling them all and living on the money right now? Probably not. So if you're not a seller, like you're 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 an accumulator. You're a buyer. Boring is great. Flat market is great. 1970s would be okay. It's not great for our lives, but we don't have control over what's going to happen. The one thing that the 1970s were great for and 2000 to 2009, which was also a lost decade, is that every 401k contribution you made, um, you were heavily rewarded for during the next bull market. You just had to wait. So I, if you're not using the money tomorrow, I don't know why you want all-time highs. I think that's the biggest um, make, question. Make like, you feel when, good? when do you need the money? That and your point about the seventies—they didn't have four hundred one k's back then. They didn't have the ability no. to invest a little bit of money out of every paycheck. And yeah, so having things—I have—I don't know—my retirement money is not going to be touched for I don't know twenty-five, thirty years. It's—it's it's, sure it does not fun to look up at what your account used to be worth and realize like, oh, it's worth less than that now. But long-run returns are yeah, the only so ones that matter. Now what? Yeah, right. So, listen. 
listen, in, in an IRA, in a 401k, you can't touch it. So what the hell do you want to, and you're, and you're contributing more to it. So you want to buy your parents' stocks from them at record highs? I could see why they would like that. Why do you want that? Yes, exactly. So I think that that's kind of where you have to come down on is just understanding that if you have the ability to make 12 or 24 or how many ever purchases you're going to make out of your 401k or IRA this year and the market just kind of goes nowhere. And it is funny though. Great. People say the market's but the people say the market's boring. The S&P's still up, I don't know, 7% this year. That's that's kind of a lot yeah. for not even halfway through the year. So I know it seems boring, but you know, you know what else year. is funny? All the commercials on the radio. Like if you listen to Bloomberg Radio, CNBC Radio. So I often, I'm, when I'm driving, I'll listen to um, Sirius XM. All the commercials are like people selling. Like the way they sell is they start the commercial with, in today's volatile times. Dude, <laughs> yes. did it, just today? They were like, running that years on. ago too. Yeah, back when there was no volatility. Yeah, every year. <laughs> yeah. We have we've we have had a, less volatile years than this year, but we've had way more volatile years. We have a guy in West Michigan who's on all these billboards, and he sells insurance and annuities, of course. And he's literally holding two safes on his arms, like an actual safe. Like I'm going to keep you safe from the stock market volatility. You're it's right. So gross. It's, Can we get Ben a, a billboard? Let's get Ben a billboard in, no, in Michigan. We don't. We don't. That's not how we roll. We only do business. We only do business with fans. We don't, we don't trick people with billboards. If you're a fan of ours, you can become a client or stay a fan. You can't come in here through some bizarre channel where we, we, uh, we put billboards up with a picture of a safe. Never, nev never make it through our process. I've got no process. slogans, Duncan. Sorry. Okay, okay. I tried. Yeah, all right, last I tried. question. Okay. It was more fun, though, I have to say, when, when the market was going up every day. I miss those days. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Everyone feels better when the market's going up, but you should. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, am I up 3% or 4% today? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, so question five is from Frank. Uh, my wife and I are 34 and we have very different views on finance. She would rather take more trips and spend more now while I, ha I have a saver's mindset and want to work towards early retirement. I enjoy the occasional trip each year, but not one each quarter. We also have a newborn on the way in two months. I'm of the mindset that we'll never be able to save enough. And that's based on my upbringing. My wife's family did very well financially, so she's never seen the other side and what the struggles are like. I'd like to take more trips to make her happy, but I don't want to sacrifice early retirement. Should we lower our retirement savings rate in favor of more uh, tax after-tax investing? We could still save but have access to the money if we wanted to take these extra trips. All right. This is the this kind is of like thing a relationship. That, this is yeah, a this, relationship problem. Yeah. This yeah. is a psychologist. I just got to get on thing. the same page. Yeah. That, that, that's, uh, have you read the Die With Zero book yet by Bill Perkins? I haven't. You heard of this, Josh, I, or not? I know of it, but I haven't, re okay. I haven't read it. He was like it. a hedge fund manager, an energy trader. I don't agree with everything in it, but I think it's it's kind of eye-opening. His point is that like you should be spending now so you know, and not stay waiting for the future and just go for it, and your, your net worth should peak way sooner than you think. Your net worth shouldn't peak at 65. It should peak at like 50 and start spending it down. So that's one side of this. The other side is how do you think about having a huge like – just like philosophical disagreement with your significant other about how you should spend money, right? Like I don't, that seems like something that almost should be handled before you get into the relationship as opposed to during, because I don't know how you're going to change the fact that I'm a huge saver and you're a spender. Where do we meet in the middle? I think it works. My wife and I are, are the opposite. Like I get emails 
from like Madison Square Garden and Barclays and the UBS Arena, like this concert is happening. That con- I'm like, I'm buying it. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. She's like, she's like, what? What are you? What are you doing? Like, but we find, like we we hash it out and we end up at a reasonable compromise. If if we're up to me, I don't even know how much money we would have saved. Not a lot. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't. I, my attitude is, I'll just go make more. Because I'm insane, and I don't think about early retirement. I'm gonna die doing this. Maybe, maybe today. Uh, stay tuned, guys. <laughs> um, so, listen. If you're doing something that you hate, then early retirement maybe is is a goal. Um, but hopefully, that's not the case, and maybe that's the bigger issue that you're so focused on stopping working that you're willing to go 30 years to denying yourself things like family trips and. Like in the end, like what do you have to show for your life? It's the it's the moments that you remember forever. Like we took we took the kids to the Caribbean, or we did a cruise. I don't do cruises, but we did a cruise. Or like those are the things that really matter when all is said and done. And so if you're not doing those now, when do you want to do them? I promise you, it doesn't get fun. It doesn't become more fun when you're 60 or 70. Like here's the thing too: if you if you retire, if you like hold everything back now and retire at 55. You're not going to hit a switch when you turn 55 and all of a sudden be okay with spending. At that point, it's going to be even harder to turn the spigot oh, on. So, worse. Yeah, you're right. The compromise thing is, a, is part of it to, to say, here's our travel budget per year. We're going to take either one really great trip or two smaller trips, whatever. Like You have to have some sort of compromise where you plan it out and put it into your budget and, and then figure out the saving from there. But I, yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of uh, – I'm, I'm more of a balanced person where, you, you yes, I'm a big saver, but – you have to get those experiences out of the way once you – I'm middle-aged now. I know out that's of the, not going Out of the way. Forever. No, you have to do <laughs> it's right? your well, life. Yes. Out of the way. All right, we, we knocked that one off the list. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> Ben's a big Listen, bucket list I, guy. Uh, I'm a planner. Hey, Seattle Michelle in the chat is pointing out – I can't believe I've never noticed this before – how much Duncan looks like the edge from U2 – and oh, the reason that's relevant, <laughs> the, re- the reason that's relevant is like I'm going to be in Vegas in October for like one day, like a business trip, and it happens to coincide with you two. Uh, they're doing a residence at the Sphere, and the Sphere is Madison Square Garden opened this like state of the art entertainment uh, destination on the Strip. And I think U2 is like the opening thing for it. So I'm, I'm just like trying to get Sprinkles to buy a ticket and come with me and let's go see U2 at the Sphere. And she's like, yeah, but we have to take uh, our daughter to see two more colleges. And, we, and I'm just like, yeah, but like when is this ever going to happen again? Like I happen to be in Vegas for something cool like this. And like what, you know, so that balance, I'm not saying like I'm always right or she's always right. But we, you have to have those conversations, um, and so maybe this is less a financial question, and it's more yeah. like a, a relationship question. And maybe you should just leave her. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Oh my god, <laughs> no, my, my wife and I kidding. are Definitely kind not. of similar. My wife, like, she'll spend on a lot of the small stuff and not think about it. When it comes to big stuff, she's like, I don't know if we should get this, and I'm kind of the opposite. It's like the little stuff that kills me for some reason. But the big stuff, I don't mind about. So it is, it is this this balancing act where I think it's good to have some give and take, but then you have to figure out what's the middle ground and like, what are your, what are your limitations you're putting on any of it? And also John, we need a side by side of Duncan and the edge because that's a great call. Well, and it's, it's oh, nice man. to see that, uh, that Frank is, is <laughs> empathetic here, right? Frank is trying to think about, you know, 
her side of the situation and trying to trying to do right by her and not just be like I, we have to save every dollar. So and and we've had questions before it's a conversation. from people, right? And we've yeah. had questions from people talk talking about, about spending tons of money on joining a country club or something, right? To me, something like taking trips is probably something that is going to enrich your life more. I don't know. I've never been a yeah, member she, of a country club. Because as long club. as you yeah, waste your money on handbags, yeah. It's it's situational because uh, where I live, or not really my town, but on the north shore of Long Island, the country club becomes the center of your social life. It's where you meet with your friends every weekend. You play the guys play cards. Um, you golf with your wife and another couple, and then your kids grow up with the kids of the other families, and it becomes like it. That's like see, I thought that was your, Starbucks. Your commu- you know? No, no. It becomes a community. So I think it's a, a walk of life question also when you're like, is a con- you can't just be like, is a- I'm not a country club guy. I, don't, I have five seconds of attention for golf. But I'm saying I love golf. that question, like, is this a good use of money? Is that a good use of money? What's the context? What does it mean for your life and the experiences you're going to have? Do the people you care about, are they into that shit? Because then maybe you should, you know, maybe that is the right way to spend money. So, you know, these are very rarely boiled down to like a nickel and dime financial question. A lot of this stuff is lifestyle. Our next spinoff is Couples Rescue. I like it. Couples Rescue. I like it. Don't have me on for that. We have a new Compounded Friends tomorrow, correct? (laughs) We we sure do. Uh, I can't can't spoil who our guests are, but they are a lot of fun and we're going to have a great show. All right. Remember, if you have a question for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Leave us a question or a comment in the YouTube. There's there's the bird dog tumbler. Nice. Yeah, bird dogs. Also, give while, them the link again. Yeah. While we were on the show, we actually got an updated code. The code this week is actually Duncan. So, oh, Duncan. Okay. If you what? want that free tumbler, put Duncan in. Yep. Okay. So it's birddogs.com. Yep. It's, in, it's in the description. It's in the description. So, all right. Okay. Go, go by the description. Hit hey, that. guys. Uh, if you like the rebrand, go ahead and give us uh, a, a like. Uh, that's artwork by uh, Duncan Hill, ladies and gentlemen. Looks fantastic. All right, keep Thanks. those questions and comments coming. Or it's askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. See you, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.